I want to invite my sister Linda uh, to come up now and lead us in our scripture reading this morning. Good morning, church. And this is the word of God, Genesis 3, the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the, word God, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You are not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one, de- one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig uh, leaves together and made themselves long clothes. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But Lord God called to the man, and he's calling, right? <laughs> Hey, by the phone. Okay. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Lord, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, Oh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but you shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and um, thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field 
by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the end of um, chapter three. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. It's a long one today. But you did great. So if, you've, if you're new here, or if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Genesis together. We've been looking at where the world came from, what God's design is for the world, and how he calls us to live as his people in the world. And we've been doing that because if, if we want to live under, properly in the world, we need to understand properly whose world is it. What type of a world is it? How is it designed to function properly? And today's story tells us what went wrong in this world. What, why isn't it the way that it was designed to be? And we see in today's passage that humanity decides to turn against God and live by their own rules, and it brings massive consequences. And one of the really interesting things about the Bible is that as the Bible tells us about God and the world and how he designed it and what's gone wrong, it, it tells us all this in story format. Like God could have given us an encyclopedia entry and just told us all the facts, but he didn't. He told us a story. And stories are really powerful because they don't just tell us ideas. They actually invite us in to share experiences. And so today we're going to look at this section of the story from Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at it part by part, not just asking what is it trying to teach us, but actually talking about how is it trying to teach us that? What are the experiences it's trying to invite us into so that we can experience them ourselves and understand more about how to follow God in the world today because of that? And what we'll see is that the story of humanity is one of rebellion and grace. Rebellion and grace. So we'll look at tools of trickery, how we fall, and God's response. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, for this chance to look at your word together and learn about who you are, who we are, how we relate to one another, how you call us to live. God, give us wisdom through this time. Give us understanding. But most of all, give us love for you and trust in you and obedience to you. Help us be willing to take you at your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, First off, how we fall. Today's passage, it's picking up in the middle of the story. So, so far we've seen some of the main characters in this story. We've seen God and humanity introduced. We've seen the setting, this world that God has created and put us in. And we're about to reach the conflict. And at the place that we're picking up the story today, we're introduced to a new character. 
in this story, someone we haven't met yet, the serpent or the snake. And if you were paying attention during the scripture reading, is this serpent a good guy or a bad guy? Not a trick question. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Bad guy, yes, we're awake, okay, good. It doesn't tell us this here, but actually in the book of Revelation, it tells us that the, the snake is actually Satan. And throughout the Bible, Satan is God's enemy. He constantly tries to fight against God and defeat God and bring God down and put himself in God's place. And in today's passage, Satan through the serpent uses several different tools to try and trick the woman into turning against God. He's trying to oppose God and he uses lots of different tools to do that. And these tools and tactics, they're ones that he still uses today against us because guess what? They work. And so these are things, we're going to look at some of them. They're things that all of us have experienced in some way, shape, or form in our lives. So we're going to look at some of the tools that he uses to try and trick the woman and then talk a little bit about what that looks like in our world today. And one of the big ones, the first one we see is that he asks questions. He asks questions. Look how the conversation starts. Did God actually say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? Look what he's doing. He's not just showing up guns blazing like, God is evil, you must oppose him. No, he just comes in and asks a question. He invites her into a conversation. It's it's harmless. What can go wrong with that? He gets her feeling comfortable. Have you ever heard about what happens if you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water? I've never tried this personally, but from what I hear, if you drop a frog into a pot of boiling water, it instantly jumps out. But if you stick a a frog in a pot of room temperature water, and then you just turn up the heat underneath it, the frog's just going to hang out in there until the water's boiling and it's cooked alive. Did you know that? It's crazy, right? But the snake understands that because that's what he's doing. He doesn't just walk in and be like, boiling water, God is evil. Because she would have jumped right out of the conversation. He comes in, he makes her feel comfortable. He gets her settled. And then as she gets comfortable, he gradually just turns up the heat on the conversation little by little until she's stuck. And don't think that just because he's asking questions rather than telling her things, that it's not a big deal. Questions are powerful. Questions reshape the way we see reality. They, they actually do it in a way that can be more powerful than making statements because they force us to come up with conclusions ourselves, right? Like if someone comes up to you and says something that's absolutely crazy, but they say, it's true, you got to believe me. There's this little voice inside your head that's like, I think that's crazy. I shouldn't listen to them. But if someone comes up to you and asks you a question, and you come up with a response to that question that's equally crazy, you're a little more ready to accept it because you came up with it yourself. Someone else didn't force this on you. You came up with this idea yourself. And so you're like, yeah, that that could be true, even though it's just as crazy as what they would have told you themselves. Questions are powerful, often more powerful than statements because they force us to come up with conclusions on our own, and it makes it more easy for us to accept that. And so he uses questions to destabilize the woman, to throw her balance off a little bit. And he does the same with us. Have any of you ever heard this saying that's very common in our world? There's no such thing as a bad question. Anyone? Yeah, a few of us. 
Yeah, it's very common in our world to hear that. I'm going to challenge that right now. This comes from a, a Christian counselor and pastor named Paul Tripp. And he says there are bad questions. And, and he says a bad question is one that's built on wrong assumptions about the world and therefore cannot possibly have a right answer. A bad question is one that's built on wrong assumptions about the world and therefore cannot possibly have a right answer. So here's an example of a bad question. The Bible says that if we are Christians, God is at work in every part of our lives working for good. Okay? So if I'm going through a tough time and I'm praying and praying and praying and I can't see God working, a bad question is, God, why aren't you doing anything in my situation right now? You know why that's a bad question? Because the fundamental assumption behind the question is that God's a liar. God has promised that he would be there for me, promised that he would be at work in my situation, and he's not. And therefore, that's the premise I have when I'm asking this question. It's, it's a bad question because it's built on a false assumption. But good questions start with God's truth and reality as their foundation. So if I'm going through a tough time, I'm praying and I can't see God at work, a better question would be, God, what are you doing here and why can't I see it? God, what are you doing in my circumstances and why can't I see it? It's better because it's taking God at his word. It's trusting that what he said is true, even though I can't see it right in this moment. And the snake's question in this passage, it's a bad question because built into the question is this assumption that the final judge of right and wrong is humanity, not God. Did God really say that? sounds kind of harsh. It doesn't really make sense. Maybe you should make your own choice rather than listen to what he says. The wrong answer is sort of built into the question that you, not God, is the real authority and you, not God, should determine for yourself what's right and wrong. And once the woman buys into this idea by responding to the question, he's just made huge progress in turning her against God. And it's a tactic that Satan still uses in the world today to try and get us to turn against God. Did, do, did God really say no sex outside of marriage? Did God really say that, that looking with someone with lust in your heart like you do in pornography is committing adultery with them in your heart? Did God really say that it's not okay for two adults who love one another deeply to get married just because they have the same gender? Did God really say he doesn't want us to get drunk? Did God really say that Jesus is the only path to salvation? The snake doesn't just come in and straight up contradict God. Doesn't call him a liar at this point in the conversation. He doesn't have to. He's simply using questions to destabilize the woman, to destabilize us and make us think that we, not God, are the ultimate authority in the world. So that's his first tactic. He asks questions. Next up, he gets her to forget God's character. So if you read through, basically Genesis chapter two, verse four through the end of chapter three is one unit in the story. And from the start of this unit in the story, every time up till this moment that God is referred to, it, it calls him the Lord God. God is just a generic name for God. It focuses on his, his bigness and his power. But Lord, it's a personal name of the God of the Bible. Like when people in the Bible ask him like, what, what's your name? He says, I am the Lord. 
It's the name that emphasizes his nearness to his people, his care for them, the fact that he makes and keeps promises to them. And look at the question the serpent asks the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? We probably just if, read right past it and not even notice it if, if it wasn't pointed out to us. But did you notice there's a big change right there? Throughout the conversation between the snake and the woman, he's no longer the Lord God. He's just God. He's big. He's powerful. But maybe he's so big and powerful that he couldn't really care about me. And here's the thing. Yes, God is big and powerful, but when my focus is only on his bigness and power and not his personal love and care for me, I'm not going to view his commands with the belief that they're actually for my good. How could they be? He's, he's too big to worry about me. So instead, I'm going to view his commands with the skepticism in my heart. I'm only going to believe they're good for me if someone can actually demonstrate to me how they could possibly be good for me. And in the story, Satan, his tactic works because look how the woman responds. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said. She refers to him again, simply as God, dropping Lord, dropping that emphasis on God's personal care for her. And she's just another step closer to disobedience. When Satan can get us to emphasize one part of God's character at the expense of another, it gives him incredible power over us. And he, again, does this in our world today. He gets us to focus on one part of God's character at the expense of other parts. And he's, he's okay doing that because it gives us an incomplete view of God that leads to incomplete obedience, which is actually complete disobedience. So if he can get us to focus completely on God's love and forget God's justice, guess what? A God who is all love, no justice, will let us get away with anything we want. This God of our own creation would never tell us no. He'll let us do anything we want, no matter how strongly the Bible tells us it's wrong. And if you're not as susceptible to believing God is all love, no justice, he's happy to swing the pendulum the other way and convince you that God is all justice, no love. Because if God is all justice, no love, then I, as his follower, am justified in acting harshly and becoming angry with the people who break God's rules. Because if God doesn't really love them, why should I show love to them? He's happy one way or the other, getting us to focus on one part of God's character at the expense of the others, because it leads to an incomplete view of God, and that leads to incomplete obedience, which is the same as complete disobedience. So that's tactic two, get us to forget God's character. And it's only at this point, once he's destabilized her with questions, once he's gotten her forgetting God's character with the wrong view of God, that he finally comes out and straight up contradicts God. He sees that she's engaged in the conversation. She hasn't run away. She hasn't told him to leave. She keeps on engaging with him. And so he just turns up the heat a little bit. And in case you're wondering, the woman did nothing wrong by having the conversation, like having the snake come up to her in the first place and tempt her. She wasn't somehow polluted or corrupted just by this conversation taking place. But the place that she goes wrong is by listening to the snake and engaging with his ideas and making them her own, not telling him to get lost. By keeping on talking to him, she's communicating, I'm open to what you're saying. 
And she invites him to become more and more bold in his attacks on God. And he uses that same tactic with us. Make us feel safe. Make us feel comfortable. Make us take down our defenses and then go for the kill shot. And that's what he does right here. Once the woman is prepared and ready, he accuses God of being a liar. He accuses God of being insecure and afraid. He accuses God of being withholding. He says, you will not surely die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God, there's something good that you could have and he doesn't want you to have it. So he's lying to you to keep you from having it. And look at his attitude as he, as he says this. He's coming from a perspective that says, I know how God works. I know what's really best for you. And I care about you. And I know that it's best if you get what you deserve. And God doesn't. He doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't want you to have what you deserve. He pretends to be a friend and a confidant so that he can gain a hearing with her. But everything he has to tell her is a direct attack on her true provider. And all of this becomes even more dangerous when you pair it with his next tactic, that he twists the truth. Did you notice as we were reading through the story, on one level, almost everything he says is exactly true. Like he says, you will not surely die. You notice what doesn't happen when they eat the fruit? No lightning from heaven strikes them dead in that moment. He says, God knows that in the moment you eat of this, your eyes will be opened. And guess what? The first thing that happens after they eat the fruit, their eyes are opened. He says, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. And at the end of the passage, God says, they have become like one of us because they ate the fruit. Everything he says is true on one level. See, the the snake, the serpent, Satan, he's happy to use anything he can, including the truth, to turn you away from God and get you to disobey God's commands. If you think ahead to the New Testament, the temptation of Jesus, Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus to get him to try and disobey God. And if you think about it, like he's going to be much more convincing with his lies if they're woven in with truth. It's like counterfeit money. If I take a piece of paper and draw on it with a crayon and take it to the bank, and I'm like, here you go, guys. Here's $1,000. Can you deposit it to my account? They're going to be like, no, this is clearly fake. But if if I get a printing press of my own and I get some of the, the actual materials that they use for making it and I get everything just right and I stamp it and make my own that looks exactly like the original, they're going to be much more likely to take that money and accept it and believe it because lies are more believable the more truth they contain. And of course, he doesn't give them the full truth. He twists the truth. The thing's he doesn't tell them is that all these things he's saying that are exactly true don't mean exactly what they think they mean. Having their eyes open and becoming like God won't actually make their lives better. It will make them miserable. And he does this in our world too. He, he clothes his lies in truth. You know, you're not going to suffer if you have sex with your boyfriend before you're married. You're actually going to grow in your love for one another and you're going to have lots of fun. And you know what? That's true. God designed sex so that when you have sex, you have fun. God designed sex so that when you have sex, your body releases chemicals that bond you to the other person and create a connection to them. So it's true. If you have sex with your boyfriend before you get married, you're going to have fun and it's going to release chemicals that connect you to one another. But you know what he ignores? is the consequences. Like the fact that 
that increased connection, if you realize, actually, this guy's no good for me, I need to get out of this relationship, being more tightly connected to him is gonna make it so much harder to get out and break things off. Or the fact that if you end up marrying someone else someday instead of this boyfriend, the chemical connection you've just created with this boyfriend is gonna make it so much harder to connect to your future husband. He tells us parts of the truth and leaves out the consequences, which ties in with his last tactic that we see here. He promises paradise. He tells this woman, if you just listen to me instead of God, if you just live my life my way instead of God's way, you can be like God. He's essentially saying my way, not God's way, is the path to true human flourishing. He focuses totally on the benefits of his way and prevents you from seeing the consequences. And again, how many things in the world today that go directly against God's word are we told this is the path to human flourishing? Selfishness and greed? Oh, you need to think about yourself from time to time. Make sure you're looking out for number one. That's the way to happiness and flourishing. Pornography? Oh, it's a victimless, safe way for you to have your sexual needs met. Any lifestyle that emphasizes being true to ourselves over being obedient to God is this this same thing over again. Him saying, listen to me and I'll give you paradise. Just ignore God. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know how to give you a good life. Satan's still at work in the world today doing the exact same things he's always done. And here in the story, we see that it leads to terrible consequences. So let's look at how we fall. Because as the story goes on, we see tragedy happen. Evil comes into the world. Like I said, Genesis 2 and 3, they form one unit of the story. And the climax, the high point of that story is Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now, some of us are in secondary school right now. Some of us haven't been in secondary school for a while. So if you can remember back to high school English class, the climax of the story is the high point, the turning point, where from that moment on, you know how the story is going to end. You know whether it's going to be a happy ending or a sad ending, like a tragedy. There's no going back once you've passed the climax of the story. And at this point, chapter 3, verse 6, is the point where we realize this story is not going to have a happy ending. And what causes that turn to tragedy? Well, human pride and laziness. Pride and laziness. First, pride. Like, have you ever wondered, like, listen to the story and thought to yourself, they ate a fruit. Like, what's the big deal? They ate a fruit. Why does it even matter? Isn't God overreacting a bit with all of these consequences? It's not like they killed someone. Come on, they ate a fruit. But here's what this question misses. The heart behind the action. See, verse six tells us before the woman ever even eats the fruit, she's already put herself in God's position and tried to usurp his authority. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. Throughout the entire story of creation, God, again and again, he, he makes things, he sees the things that he has made, and he says, they're good. And verse six tells us before the woman even eats the fruit, she already put herself in God's position. She, she sees the fruit. She sees that it's good, just like God. But you know the problem? God's already told her, it's not good for you to eat this. She's contradicting God's assessment of the tree. She's putting herself 
and her assessment of the tree in its place. And by doing that, what's she done? She's just taken God off his throne and put herself there. That's why it's such a big deal. It's not the action itself of reaching out to eat a fruit. It's the heart attitude required to be able to do that action in the first place. Before you can reach out your hand to take the fruit, you have to do the spiritual equivalent of walking into God's throne room, shoving him off the throne and sitting yourself down in his place. It's cosmic treason and treason deserves death. That's why it's such a big deal. So she reaches out her hand, she takes the fruit and she eats. Pride, putting ourselves in God's place leads to our downfall. And at this point in the story, we're introduced to a shocking twist. Because up until this point, there have been two characters in the story. There's the snake, there's the woman, they're talking with one another, and all of a sudden, the camera zooms out a little bit, and we realize that standing right there all along, just out of the shot, is a third character. The husband, the man, the one who was given the primary job of keeping or protecting or guarding the garden. He's been sitting there silently, saying nothing the entire time. The man, the one who, as we saw last week, was called to lead his family, he sits back in silence while his wife makes a deadly decision and he does absolutely nothing to stop her. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We can't place all the blame on her pride. As much if not more blame needs to go on his laziness. He ignored the role that God called him to as leader of his family and protector of the garden and his laziness caused everything under his care to suffer. And after seeing, hey, my wife ate the fruit, she's still alive, can't be that bad, can it? He joins her in her deadly decision and her act of treason against God. Human pride and laziness lead to tragedy. And right away, we see the serpent was telling the truth, but it means something far different than they thought that it was gonna mean. Just like the snake promised, their eyes were opened, but having their eyes open does not make their lives better because it shows them their shame. They realize we're naked. They're no longer comfortable being naked in front of one another. And so now their nakedness is a problem that needs to be fixed. And we see three classic responses to shame here in how they respond. Responses that are still common in the world today. First, cover it up. They try to make clothes for themselves out of fig leaves so that they can cover their nakedness. They try and fix the problem so it can go away and not be a problem anymore. And as is usually the case when we try and cover up things we've done wrong, it's not very effective. All they can manage to make for themselves is, is what the passage called loincloths. It's basically the word for a belt. They work their best to try and cover it up and they've got a belt that leaves them still feeling totally and completely naked when God arrives on the scene. Which leads to the second response, hide. If you can't make the problem go away, make it so no one can find you and no one can know that you're part of it. They hear God coming in the garden, so they run away. And of course, he's God. You can't hide from God. And once they realize this, it leads to their third response, which is blaming. Sure, I did it, but it wasn't really my fault. I mean, look what the man says. This is great. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. God, yeah, I did it, but it's only because my wife gave it to me. And you gave my wife to me, so it's actually your fault. I wouldn't have eaten the fruit, God, if you hadn't put me in that position. And then the wife, 
oh, you know, yeah, but the serpent tricked me, so it's not really my fault. Given the chance to come clean, they blame everyone and everything so they can avoid having to take responsibility themselves. And these three responses, covering, hiding, blaming, they're ones that all of us have tried at different times in our lives. Deleting the email and the records of the conversations so that no one can see that they existed. Running away and just not responding to phone calls so they can't catch us. Coming up with a list of everyone else whose fault it is that I did this thing wrong so that it can't be pinned on me. We've all done it. And just as their covering and hiding and blaming couldn't cover their shame in the garden, it can't solve our problems in the world today either. So where do we find a solution to the shame and the problems? The answer is in God and his response. See, if you want to find in the Bible the classic description of God's character and identity, it comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 6. He's speaking to Moses, and he says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's forgiving, but he will by no means clear the guilty. See, this description that God gives of himself, it takes two things that our world sees as mutually exclusive and contradictory, and it brings them together. On the one hand, God is just. He will not clear the guilty. He can't let cosmic trees inside, whether it's in Eden or whether it's in our world today. If we come to God and we say, I know better than you, don't tell me how to live my life. Let me just do what I want. God is just. He can't let that slide. It has consequences. But on the other hand, the first, most instinctive, deepest response of his heart is not to just bring down the hammer. It's actually to be merciful and gracious, to forgive, to give another chance, to show love. And we see these two things, his justice and his love and mercy coming together over and over and over throughout this passage. I mean, the justice, you might be like, yeah, it's pretty clear where that is. He comes in, he gives them consequences, he kicks them out of the garden. Where's the love? It's all over the place. I mean, first, God said, the day you eat from the tree, you will die. You notice what didn't happen the moment they ate the fruit? Lightning from heaven. He let them live. Why didn't God kill them right away? Because he loves them. His justice is paired with mercy and love. But next, the moment they disobey, God could have like appeared on the scene like a magician in a puff of smoke. Like, boom, I'm here. What did you do? He didn't do that. What did he do? He went for a walk in the garden, not right next to them, just went for a walk. And you notice how he went for the walk. He was very noisy. Maybe, maybe the, the sound could be like the sound of his footsteps. It could be that he was just like singing a song as he walked through the garden. He was making lots of noise so they'd know he was there. Why? It was an invitation. Guys, come back. I'm right here. All you have to do is walk around the corner and you'll see me. And they run away. And so does God scold them and be like, I know what you did. Get out of here now. No, he asks a question. Where are you? It's not that he's confused and has no idea where they are. It's kind of like if your kid takes the cookie jar and tries to hide behind the curtains in the corner of the living room and you see like their feet sticking out and crumbs falling from their mouth as they eat and you're standing in the middle of the room staring at them. You're like, where are you? But you're giving them a chance to come clean on their own. 
without you having to be the one who just comes in and scolds them. He's constantly, again and again, inviting them out, giving them a chance. And even, even when they come out and they're like, well, we heard you, but we hid because we, were, we knew we were naked. He doesn't say, how dare you? He says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Again, giving them a chance, inviting them out. And then what does the man do? He blames the woman and God. It's not my fault. I did it, but it's, it's really not my fault, God. And rather than just scold him, God turns to the woman. He gives her a chance to speak for herself, treats her with dignity and honor. And she blames someone else. Again and again, God gives them chance after chance after chance to come clean on their own initiative, to share honestly with, that, with him about what they did. And again and again, they refuse but God's still reaching out to them in love and mercy. And of course, there are consequences for their action. God is just. But even as he distributes justice, there's love and mercy all over the place. Like first, we see the snake is cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Do you ever notice that is fantastic, wonderful news? Because he is our enemy. Our enemy who's trying to defeat us and destroy us is himself going to be destroyed by God. And we see in this curse, not only is God going to defeat this enemy, humanity is going to defeat him too. He says in verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He says, the woman's going to have a child and there's going to be a great fight between the woman's child and the snake's child. And in that process, the snake's head is going to be crushed. Did you know this is the first promise in the Bible that God's going to send a rescuer to save us from what happened in the garden that day? It's the first promise of Jesus, right? God comes in after this horrible, horrible rebellion and right away, he promises, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to send a rescuer. This snake is not going to have the last word. God's love for humanity shines through as he distributes justice to the snake. But it's not just showing in his consequences for the snake. Next up, the woman gets consequences. He says she's going to have pain in childbirth and conflict with her husband. Now, that just sounds terrible. How is there any love there? Well, guess what? She's going to have children. She's not going to die today. She's going to keep living on and, and the species will be able to live on. God is still a God of love. He's still preserving life and giving more chances. And then the man gets his consequences. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for your dust and to dust, you shall return. The ground is cursed. Work is going to be painful and unproductive. But guess what? He also is going to live another day. God's going to provide him with food. Yeah, it's going to be hard to get it, but God's going to send it so humanity can keep on living. Make no mistake, God is just. We see his justice in these consequences. But every step of the way, his justice is tempered by mercy, by forgiveness, by love. And it gives this very, very dark story, a, a note of hope. And then look what God does next. He covers their shame in a way they were utterly incapable of covering their shame on their own. 
Remember, when they saw they were naked, they grabbed leaves, they sewed them together, they made these belts for themselves, and their best efforts at covering themselves left themselves totally naked. But God made for them garments of skins and clothed them. That word for garments, it can mean like a robe or a coat. He covered them completely in a way that they couldn't cover themselves. He covers their nakedness, covers their shame. But notice something here. What are the robes made of? They're made of animal skins. Where do animal skins come from? Again, not a trick question. Where do animal skins come from? Dead animals, yes. A price needs to be paid to cover their shame, and the price is death. But in God's love, that price is paid by a substitute. Something else dies so that they can live and have their shame covered, which is another picture of hope that's pointing to Jesus. Because what happens with Jesus? He comes, he dies in our place to cover our shame, to give us true and full forgiveness for everything we've ever done wrong so that we can live and have a new relationship with God and come into his presence with confidence because we don't, we don't need to be afraid of being fully known anymore. But at this point in the story, that's, that's still way to come in the future. At this point in the story, the next thing God does is kick them out of the garden which seems really harsh. He's taking them out of paradise and sending them into exile. But the story actually told, tells us this seemingly harsh thing is actually an act of love and protection by God. Because if he left them in the garden with access to the tree of life, they'd eat it and be trapped in this brokenness and misery they're experiencing right now forever. By sending them out from the garden, he's protecting them from themselves so that they can't eat of that fruit, so they can't be trapped. And as we close out today's passage, the way back to paradise is closed. There's nothing humanity can do to get back to paradise through our effort. Sounds kind of dark and depressing, huh? So where does that leave us? Well, we have an enemy who's tricky, who's clever, who's trying to kill us. Just like the man and the woman, we've all listened to his lies. We've chosen the path to death rather than the path to life. And God it's just, he has consequences for us. Yes, they're tempered by his love so we can have hope. But how does he call us to respond from this passage? And I think the invitation that he gives us in this passage is to take him at his word, just like Adam and Eve. Hmm? I thought the whole point of the passage was that they didn't take him at his word and that's why everything went wrong. And yeah, at the start, that's what happened. But, but I think at the end, we see a change actually. Look at verse 20 with me. God has just shown up on the scene. He's given out all the consequences. And then it tells us the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Think about where we are in the story when he gives her this name. Everything has just gone wrong. They are supposed to die. God has given them consequences for their rebellion and they have no kids. And it's at this exact moment that Adam's like, I'm gonna give my wife a name. And that name means mother of all the living. Why would he give her that name? I think, I could be wrong, but I think it's because he's finally realized life goes best when I just trust God and take him at his word. And I'm gonna do that now. I'm gonna take God at his word. I'm gonna believe the things he says are true, that, that God is gonna give us kids just like he promised. And there's hope for the future because God's gonna send a rescuer. So, so even though the world is so broken and messed up, we can bring kids into it and it's gonna be a worthwhile thing because God is gonna rescue us and he has given us hope. 
He's already tried doing things his own way and he's realized ignoring God just leaves a mess. And life is best when we just take God at his word and trust him. And God promised, I'm gonna give you kids. And Adam says, yes, God, I receive that. I accept that. I'm gonna give my wife a name that expresses confidence that you are going to keep your promises. He's acting in faith, taking God at his word, just like God calls you and me to do today. So what does it look like for you to respond to God's word in faith and take him at his word today? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who is just, but also merciful and loving. That you're a God who doesn't just come down and drop the hammer on us when we mess up, but you're a God who again and again and again gives us an invitation and seeks to draw us out so that we can have a restored relationship with you again. God, we confess, all of us, that over and over we have listened to the lies of the enemy. We've chosen the path that leads to death and destruction rather than the path that you tell us leads to life. And we pray for your forgiveness for that, God. God, we thank you for your promise that our enemy will be defeated, that he will not have the last word, but that life and joy and hope have the last word because of the rescuer that you're gonna send. God, teach us to take you at your word today, to trust that you are good, that you are for us, and that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.